We've got two stocks going in different directions and a special anniversary shout-out. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me today, Motley Fool Senior Analyst Asit Sharma. Thanks for being here. Chris, I appreciate you having me on. Uh, once again, we are in the position of recording before the Federal Reserve makes its announcements uh, regarding the rate hike, and people are listening to this after that news has broken. So We're going to talk about the Fed and interest rates later in the week on this show, and you and I are just going to focus on earnings results. And Let's start with Peloton, because shares are up nearly 20% because second quarter revenue came in higher than expected. Next week marks the one-year anniversary of Barry McCarthy being appointed CEO. He called these results a possible turning point. I'm not a shareholder, but I hope he's right. It could be a turning point, Chris. Here we see a company that's cut its cash burn down tremendously. Just two quarters ago, Peloton burned $547 million in in cash, so that's negative free cash flow. This quarter, it came in at negative ninety four million dollars. McCarthy has done, I think, a lot of your basic turnaround playbook in pretty convincing fashion. Uh, he has uh, changed the go to market strategy, so forming relationships with companies like Amazon.com and Dick Sporting Goods. He's focused on reducing uh, the, the inventory that was so bloated and has emphasized that subscription revenue. Subscription revenue this quarter came in at $411 million, bucks, so that's more revenue than they took in from selling equipment at $380 million. Why that's important? Uh, well, number one, it's a trend for the last couple of quarters. But number two, they actually make money on subscriptions. <laughs> so we have positive subscription gross profit of 278 million bucks. You have a cash burn in gross profit on the equipment side, the connected fitness product side of 43 million. If this trend continues, then conceivably that subscription gross profit can make this a positive business. Uh, McCarthy said today, you know, if you strip away some of the extraneous cash flow items, we really were sort of break even on cash flow or slightly positive. If you adjust any number enough, of course you can get positive, as, as we both know, Chris. But he's got a point there. So, yes, this potentially is a floor in all the bleeding we've seen uh, in Peloton over the past several quarters. I went back and looked at my notes from a year ago when McCarthy was an um, appointed CEO. Uh, Bill Mann was on the show at the time. And one of the questions I posed to him was, hey, do you think they brought this guy in just to sell the company? And in summary, Bill said, no, I don't think so. I think that you know, you look at McCarthy's experience at Netflix and at Spotify, uh, he's, he's someone who's been brought in to try and turn the business around. I, I'm glad, again, I'm not a shareholder, but I'm glad the results turned out the way they did and the stock is reacting the way it did, in part because even with the pop today, shares are basically trading at half of where they were when McCarthy came in as CEO. And I think if they didn't have this glimmer of light in their quarterly results, I think we would be talking about, you know, okay, McCarthy's been on the job for a year, he's done what he can, but it might be time to sell this company to someone else. I think some large companies are still interested. 
at least sniffing around at Peloton, but he really is managing this company not just to present it for sale, but to make something of this business. And look, Peloton is still a market leader in the connected fitness industry. It's still a really strong brand among consumers. So there's no reason that this couldn't be a successful business, whether the stock ever fulfills the promise that it had when it IPO'd. I don't know, but there's a bigger point here in, in that every manufacturing business, which this is, has to find its equilibrium point, has to find that profitable equation. It looks like Peloton 2.0 is going to do it by not bleeding so much cash on the equipment and finding a way to keep pushing those subscriptions. I mean, they still have a pretty decent base of connected fitness subscribers. Subscriptions are over 3 million uh, unique subscribers. So there you go, Chris. Like I, I say, I think there is something here in this business. And I think McCarthy, as you point out, uh, isn't in the hottest seat now. The, the seat's cooled down some. Let's see if, if he can uh, continue this performance over another year. Absolutely. Three months from now, it's going to be interesting to see if this is a trend or if this was um, the positive version of a speed bump. Let's move on to, speaking of speed bumps, let's move on to Snap. His shares are down 13% because fourth quarter revenue was a little lower than expected, average revenue per user was lower than expected, and Probably not a surprise, given what we've seen over the last few months in the digital ad space from companies like Google that are a lot bigger than Snap. Oh, Snap. I can't be the first analyst to have said that. <laughs> but you have a point, Chris. There's a really pronounced pullback among middle market companies, among enterprise companies to rein in their advertising. And that directly affects companies like Snap. Snap itself is more of a targeting advertising company. So when you have this double whammy of Apple instituting its privacy changes and companies just not wanting to spend as much on targeted advertising, um, I, I think Snap finds itself in this uncomfortable position. They're already burning cash. They're business model has never yet realized its uh, potential to be a, this hugely positive uh, operating model. So, what we have here is a company whose balance sheet is getting slimmer. You look at its working, working capital versus its convertible debt, and there's not much room there, uh, not much breathing room. And you also have a company on the other hand, which keeps increasing its daily active users, those increased 17% year over year in the fourth quarter. They still dominate uh, a certain demographic. They're starting to compete with TikTok. You know, they have a, an alternative offering. And they also have a burgeoning AR business, which some think could be a revenue generator in the future. So, I don't want to try to pull out too many silver linings here, because there aren't a lot in this report, except to say that Snap has the user base. It's got the engagement uh, over time. Maybe the, the numbers were a bit soft this quarter. The question is, how do you make this model profitable and cash flow generative on a you know, per-user basis? Well, and we've seen this story before within the Alphabet empire. I mean, this really, you know, for as strong as YouTube is, 
you know, there's a, a very healthy stretch of time where that was the question around YouTube. You know, people looking at it and say, "How can YouTube be as dominant as it is as a video platform, and it's still not really um, the profit machine that Google Search is?" Um, uh, you said there aren't a lot of silver linings to Snap, and I, I agree with that. I would also add as one more thing that is not a silver lining is they're still not technically offering official guidance, but they are talking openly about. What they refer to as their internal forecast, and that forecast is projecting a drop in revenue, which can't be good for their cash flow. There are a few levers to pull. Let's just briefly talk about one. Snapchat does have a subscription service. It's called Snapchat Plus. They now have two million paying subscribers. You mentioned YouTube, Chris. That's something that YouTube has done to increase the monetization of of its business model. This is an area where you know potentially they can stabilize revenue a bit, but it's just not growing quickly enough to sort of cover the shortfall. When you talk about a decline in revenue for a company that is barely generating free cash flow, that worries investors because, as I mentioned before, look, the balance sheet is a little thin. Uh, it's 3.7 odd billion of convertible debt on their books uh, at the moment. Uh, and their working capital, which I referred to, has only an excess of about $300 million. So, what if the company is subject to this weak economy, um, doesn't have that lift now that Apple's pulled back on its um, privacy changes? And at the same time, you can't grow the other parts of the business quick enough. You can't pull up the subscription base, you can't get enough uh, monetization out of the, the VR venture. It's just hard to see where this business starts to gain its momentum, unless and until the economy as a whole recovers. Then you can maybe see a little bit of breathing room here. Yeah, and and maybe on some level, there you know, there it doesn't make sense to talk openly about this, but perhaps privately, they're just crossing their fingers that TikTok just gets banned in the United States across the board. That seems <laughs> like that would be a boost. It would be a boon. I bet a lot of companies where TikTok, oh yeah, they're not the only market one. share, are hoping the same thing. Let's be clear: Snap is not the only business crossing its fingers that TikTok just gets banned in America. That's true. To the uh, consternation and dread of millions upon millions of teenagers on up, and, and some people even our age, Chris. Asa Charma, always great talking to you. Thanks for being here. So much fun. Thanks a lot, Chris. The first exchange traded fund celebrated its 30th birthday this year. What started with just a few million dollars of capital is now a $10 trillion industry. Jason Moser and Matt Frankel look back on the history of the ETF and how stock investors use them today. Hey, Matt, it's great to catch up with you again. You know, we say a lot on the on these shows, but it's always worth reiterating. We're big fans of index funds, and I, I know that seems maybe a little out of sorts, given that we focus primarily on individual stocks here at the Molly Fool for the most part. But our ultimate goal is to help people achieve their financial freedom, and index funds are a great way 
a great part of that overall strategy. Index funds, ETFs, and you know, exchange traded funds. Uh, th those are just great ways for investors to to achieve that overall strategy. And this year marks a special occasion for a special fund. Right, the the SPDR, the Spider S and P 500 ETF, Exchange Traded Fund Trust, just turned 30 years old this month, Matt. Now I'm older than that fund. <laughs> I think you are too, but but you know, hey, listen, they grow up so fast, right? We we thought it would be a good chance to dig a bit more into exchange traded funds ETFs, dig into the history, what they are, why they are often a great option for investors, both passive and active. And so to kick this conversation off, let's just start with the very basics. What is an ETF and and who started this? Yeah, so the first part, an ETF, it's a way for investors to buy a whole bunch of stocks with one single investment. If you buy an S&P 500 ETF, you're buying all 500 companies that make up that index. They trade on major exchanges, just like shares of stock. That's the biggest difference between them and mutual funds. And you mentioned index funds. Uh, a lot, Most ETFs are index funds, meaning that they just passively track an index. But they don't have to be. There's a lot of active ETFs out there as well. Uh, the Kathy Wood, the ARK Invest ETFs are a, a really good example of that. Um, but yeah, they are kind of a, a mutual fund alternative, if you will, that kind of just trades like a basic stock on the stock exchange. Okay, so you said you said the word there that a lot of people are very familiar with, and that is mutual, right? Mutual funds. I grew up in the age of mutual funds, and I'm sure they were uh, a very popular offering uh, early on in your investing career as well. But we've certainly seen a pivot here over the last several years away from mutual funds towards more uh, index fund investing, exchange traded fund investing. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the advantages and the, and, and the disadvantages. And let's let's go ahead and let's go with the bad news first, right? What are the disadvantages to actually investing with exchange traded funds? Or or are there any disadvantages? Well, first of all, mutual funds are still very popular. There are about three times as much assets invested in mutual funds as there are in ETFs, even today. Wow. Um, the big reason is that's the main choice of retirement plans and things like that. Those are mostly in mutual funds still. Um, but there are some disadvantages as opposed to individual stocks. Most uh, exchange-traded funds are just designed to match an index's performance, not beat it, which is kind of the goal of investing in individual stocks. And there's always some sort of expense or fee that comes with it. Now, with a lot of index funds, that's very small, but it's still more of a fee than you're going to pay to develop your own portfolio from scratch in, in a brokerage account. So, there are a few disadvantages. Um, another one is that most ETFs are weighted, uh, meaning that they can be very top-heavy. The, uh, the S&P 500 ETF that you mentioned has 20% of its assets in just seven companies. Um, so it, it can be very top heavy. You're putting a lot more of your money in the biggest positions in a given index fund. Um, but those are just kind of minor disadvantages. For, for the most part, these are actually really great investment products. Well, what are some of the advantages with them? Because it feels like you run across every day sort of a new theme, right? I mean, as 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 we see new themes develop in the investing world, I think a lot of that is kind of dictated by technology. Um, but but it, it does it does seem as if we we see new ETFs coming online every day that are following some sort of theme. So it, it, at least one of the advantages to me 
it strikes me at least that maybe there's a little bit more choice for investors in sort of the thematic investing, right? You have a little bit more opportunity to chase the things that you're really interested in, and, and, and that choice didn't really exist before. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, that, that's definitely an advantage. Um, the biggest advantage in my mind is that you don't have to worry about your investments as much as with individual stocks. Yeah. Let me just, we, this whole episode's kind of about the history of ETFs, so I want to give a, a one-minute history lesson. Okay. Um, ETFs, as you mentioned, started in 1993. They just turned 30. But they didn't really gain steam for the first decade or so. And the reason that they ultimately wound up getting popular is because of the dot-com crash. Investors didn't want to, their money tied up or you know, all invested in one or two or three individual stocks. They wanted to buy the tech sector for a long-term investment. We went from having about 80 ETFs in, 20, in 2000 to 2,700 ETFs today. Wow, and and that that momentum really took off after the dot com crash, and it's because it has that benefit of you're not investing too heavily in any given stock, you're just trying to you know match the market or the sector's performance over time, which is you know after a big crash like that really you know, showed its appeal. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Well, how how do you recognize the? You mentioned earlier the expense side of things. I just want real quick for investors to be able to, if if they're interested in looking more into the expenses that are involved with something like this, how do how do you find out the expenses associated with investing in a mutual fund versus an ETF? What is that called? Where do we look for that information? They're they're both pretty easy. There's two main ways to do it. Number one is you could go to the ETF providers page. Um, like if I go to Vanguard's website and type in Vanguard S and P 500 ETF, it gives me a whole fact sheet, and the top one of the top lines on there is the expense ratio. The alternative is just log into your brokerage account, type in the ETF's ticker symbol, or just look for it in the search tool, and you can find the expense ratio that way. It's usually, like I said, number the one of the top things listed, just because it is a big differentiator between different funds and ETFs. Yeah, well. It does. It does feel. I mean, again, I mean, at the, the start of the start of the segment here, I did mention. I mean, it, we focus a lot on individual stocks right here at the Motley Fool. I mean, that's kind of kind of what we do for the most part. But by the same token, I, I would be willing to to wager that that all of us, you know, all all of us on the investing team, um, we we like ETFs, right? I mean, I think most of us do. I, I think probably most, if not all of us, actually own ETFs in some capacity too. I mean, they're excellent tools, right? They're excellent. Parts of your overall portfolio—they give you that instant diversification, um, and, and can can kind of help you sleep at night, which is what we we often say is like you want you want to own stuff that helps you sleep at night. Uh, but but I mean, ultimately, do you feel like ETFs are a better option than individual stocks, or is this really you need to have both? I mean, every money should own them along with individual stocks. Is it one or the other, or really should we would be focused well, on, on the both? ETFs can be a great way to kind of create a backbone to a portfolio. I feel more comfortable having money in individual stocks if you know yeah. a certain percentage of my assets are just in a S&P 500 index fund. Sure. But they're also better than individual stocks in certain senses in specifically to invest in things you're not necessarily comfortable with analyzing individual stocks in. I can give a personal example is I have no idea how to evaluate biotech companies. <laughs> so I use an ETF to invest in that part of the market. They could be better than individual stocks in that way, as in, as opposed to going outside of your circle of competence 
and investing in things you're not comfortable with. So I, I like them for that reason, bonds especially. Who wants to go buy individual bonds? The ETF route is actually better than the individuals in that in that respect. Yeah, yeah. That's I'm glad you brought that up. It reminds me of um, a, a recent uh, a, a recent piece of content I published in in my my next gen super cycle service, the five G service. I'll pull the curtain back a little bit here. I don't think I'm giving too much away, but we have a radar stock feature every other month. I introduce a radar stock feature. It's not a recommendation, but it's a stock that's on my radar, something that I'm interested in. Um, in, in this past month, I actually introduced an ETF as a radar stock that was focused on cybersecurity. And the basic idea is, listen, man, I, cybersecurity is tough. I am fully not an expert on it. I, it. And furthermore, it feels like that's a market that just is constantly changing as the threats constantly evolve and as tech constantly evolves. And so I saw that ETF as one way for investors to consider investing in cybersecurity without having to try to place, you know, all all of their all of their chips, so to speak, on one horse, right? I don't know. It, it just seems like it's a very difficult space to, to pick one winner when you probably have a few that are gonna gonna help drive performance there. So I found you know again I didn't recommend it. Maybe I will, but it did seem like an ETF in the cybersecurity space um, was Perhaps one way for investors to consider getting some exposure there. And, and speaking of exposure, I guess before before we before we leave today, I want to just ask you: Are there any recommendations out there? Do you have any recommendations uh, for ETFs beyond the spider? Right beyond this this S and P uh, index fund that's celebrating its thirtieth birthday. Um, anything out there on your radar? Anything? I mean, I'm sure it's probably something real estate related, but but I figured I'd check. <laughs> well, I don't know why you would think that. Nah. But I, I, I'll give you three. Um, two two Vanguard funds in particular I like are the VYM, which is the high dividend ETF. It's um, above average dividend payers. Companies like Exxon, like Microsoft, I think is one of them. Um, companies that pay above average dividends. If you want yield plus growth potential, that's a good one to look at. Uh, the VNQ is the real estate one that you just mentioned that invests in the REIT index. Uh, it could be a great way to diversify your portfolio away from stocks, just because real estate and stocks don't really uh, correlate too well. And third is a ticker symbol called RSP. It's an equal weight S&P 500 ETF. And the benefit of that is I mentioned that a lot of ETFs can be very top heavy. Um, if, if you buy an S&P 500 ETF like the, the Spider. Um, 12% of the assets are in Apple and Microsoft alone. So, what an equal weight fund does, it takes your money and invests it equally in all 500 companies, kind of eliminates the top heaviness. So, that's one to look at if you don't like the, the kind of concentrated nature of weighted ETFs. I love it, and and I'm not going to leave listeners hanging. Just so that we're clear, the the radar the radar ETF that I announced last month in the service is the Nasdaq First Trust CTA Cybersecurity Index. Man, it's a mouthful. The ticker is CIBR. Again, not a recommendation, but certainly uh, something I, I I'm digging in a little bit more uh, to as as far as uh, looking at the cybersecurity space. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.